Welcome to Wonk, a podcast sounding out smart policy and the people behind it. I'm Edward Greenspan. I would say that the global energy transformation that's underway now is by far the largest undertaking in human history. And I don't think it is sufficiently well appreciated just what an enormous challenge that is. If you've ever stood on the shores of the North Atlantic, you will understand just what a powerful force the wind can be. Atlantic Canada has one of the world's longest and windiest coastlines. Over generations, we have learned to respect the wind, fear it, and during the age of sailing ships, put it to work. In today's clean energy age, the wind again can be harnessed, which holds out the promise of turning the East Coast into Canada's next great energy region. Offshore wind is becoming a hot topic, in part thanks to our guest today. Peter Nicholson is the author of PPF's influential report, Catching the Wind, which shows that offshore wind power is not just doable, but essential to Canada's energy transition. Peter is the Dean of Public Policy Thinking in Canada. He was instrumental in Canada's deficit-busting 1995 budget and later headed the policy shop in Paul Martin's PMO. He's been a strategic advisor to leaders of the OECD, Scotiabank, and Bell Canada Enterprises, and is currently chair of the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. We find him today in his native Nova Scotia. Welcome to Wonk, Peter. Glad to be here, Ed. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Delightful. How's the weather out there today? It's very windy. <laughs> in fact, you might hear a little gale or two in the background. Well, that's a convenient way to uh, frame our conversation. You've been described as a one-man think tank. You've advised Paul Martin on deficit fighting. You've worked on fishery policy. You've worked on the Latin American debt crisis. Where does climate policy rank in the list of the challenges that you've tackled? Well, it's probably the biggest challenge, certainly in global terms, and I would say in national terms. I mean, this is clearly a an issue that is going to involve and engage virtually the whole world over the next 30 years or so. So I can only hope to play a small part in that, and but a, a part that in our particular part of the world here in Atlantic Canada may turn out to be significant. Now, would you consider this like a passion or is it more like one of those dalliances of which you've had several? I would say it's an acquired passion. I became chair of the board of the Climate Institute at a time when I really didn't have much background in the subject of climate change, I sort of paid the same degree of attention that ordinary citizens do. But since that time, and more than four years now, I guess I've acquired a passion for the subject and have managed over the years to learn quite a bit from the very knowledgeable and very passionate people that I've been able to interact with in the Climate Institute. And we say it's windy out there today, and you grew up um, around Annapolis Royal. Did you ever start thinking that windmills have been around for a long time, that the wind blowing out there could be a resource, that it could be a solution? If I were to be honest, I'd say no. Frankly, when I was growing up here, I still thought of windmills the way that Don Quixote might have thought of them. You know, these were probably technologies from the 15th or 16th century. And I think like most North Americans 
who grew up basically dominated by fossil energy and hydro and nuclear eventually. Frankly, we didn't think about wind or solar until really the last decade or so. Because we had it energy easy, I guess. Yeah, we have. And that explains really why we're more than a bit behind the eight ball when it comes to building up our clean renewables to the degree that's going to be required to achieve our net zero objective in the next 22, 23 years. We'll come back to uh, Don Quixote, who might be a good historical metaphor in a few minutes. But, you know, when I look at your accomplishments, you've always been the kind of the brainy advisor, the ideas guy, and not the person who runs the organization. What does that tell us about you? I've always been interested in the, in a sense, the analytical substance of issues, not so much the politics. I, I became, I guess, more involved in the politics because eventually ideas don't get anywhere if you don't pay some attention to how they're implemented. But my own intellectual history has been one of basically scientific curiosity. I've always appreciated attempting a logical analysis of whatever the issue. So I educated myself in physics and mathematics, did a PhD at Stanford, and only gradually altered my career path into business and government. Yeah, I've heard you quote Napoleon uh, from time to time in describing <laughs> your career. Remind me of that. Yeah, well, I, I was told by someone that Napoleon's motto, or one of his mottos, was always to march toward the sound of gunfire. And I find that that's a pretty good metaphor. When I look back on the projects that I've been involved with, and they've covered an incredible range, virtually all of them were issues where there was a, a very severe problem <laughs> to be addressed, you know, whether it was the Latin American debt, the crisis in the fishing industry, the fiscal crisis faced by Canada in 1995. My career history has been one of, well, I hope not quite tilting at windmills, but obviously marching toward the sound of metaphorical gunfire, and I still do. So along the way, you've Rub shoulders with a lot of people. People have, you know, been influenced in their careers by you. And so in one of the biggest books of the year, Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk, lo and behold, Peter Nicholson shows up, very importantly, with two young men, Elon and his brother Kimball, both dressed in new suits from Eaton's, I think. So tell me about the uh, young Elon Musk and uh, how you got to know him. I got to know Elon as a result of a cold call. I was working for Scotiabank in Toronto at the time, working for the CEO, Cedric Ritchie, and Elon Musk called me out of the blue. So you were the recipient of the cold call. I was the recipient of the cold call, and he simply said, look, my brother and I are commerce students at Queen's. Uh, we're looking for a summer job. We'd be interested in working with you. So I, I said, not knowing who Elon Musk was, obviously, well, come up to Toronto and I'll buy you lunch and we'll talk about it. They did and we did. And somehow out of that conversation, Elon drew the short straw because I only had room for one position and turned out to be Elon. And it was more than a summer job. He stayed for about a year and a half and didn't, in fact, go back to Queens, went to the University of Pennsylvania, where he had a dual degree in both physics and business, or economics, I think, actually. And uh, we've maintained 
sporadic contact ever since. In fact, I had dinner with him uh, just a few months ago in Austin, Texas. As you had dinner with him in Austin, Texas, you probably reflected on the uh, young Elon Musk you met. So tell me about the two Elon Musks and uh, that evolution. The fact is that the two Elon Musks are basically the same. Certainly in my experience, the Elon that I had dinner with in Austin in April was indistinguishable from the Elon that I mentored when he was a 19-year-old. He's always been fascinated by the substance of issues. He has an engineering mindset. He has tremendous enthusiasm for the technologies that he's been involved with. In terms of his ambition to change the world, I mean, what you see is what you get. It's genuine with him. Uh, you may say it's unrealistic, but given what he's already demonstrated, I'm not sure how unrealistic it is. Anyway, we had a terrific time back in April, and this was at a very difficult time for him because Twitter now X was going through the throes at that point, and I would have expected him to be really in a glum mood, but he wasn't. He did acknowledge that his timing in the purchase of Twitter was inauspicious. But uh, apart from that, I mean, he still felt that he could make a business of it. We'll see. What kind of advice might have you given him on the position he found himself in? Well, I, I look, I can't give him any particular advice on any of the technical issues. The one piece of advice that I have given him and would give him is stick with engineering and stay out of politics. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not the only one that has provided that advice. Well, a lot of people seem worried about him. A lot of people seem wary about him. Are you concerned? Well, I mean, one has to be. I watched a recording of a presentation that he gave in Italy recently, and it was the old Elon. And, you know, he seemed to be completely in command of not only the subject, but his own emotions. But look, politics simply isn't in the core of his skill set. But because he's become such an international celebrity and has sort of taken to the role, it was inevitable that he found himself in water <laughs> that was deeper than he was comfortable swimming in. And that's where he is today. And I think it's unfortunate, both for him and for the world, frankly. We need Elon Musk back electrifying cars and shooting rockets into space and bringing them back. Well, I think that's a good transition because, you know, obviously Elon Musk is central to the energy transformation business, and now you're talking up offshore wind. So how do you think we are doing with the energy transition challenge? We're at the point, both globally and nationally, where we've identified the big picture, certainly in terms of the targets. So I think at the very macro level, there's been a lot of progress made. We're at the stage now, though, Ed, where, where we have to become quite a bit more granular. And let's say you take a, a target like 40% below Canada's 2005 emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Well, that's all very well and good, but how exactly are we going to get there? Up until now, we've been relying mostly on computer models that say it's still feasible to get there, which it is in theory. But as you get down to the consideration of implementing the specific projects to get you there, you start to realize just 
what an incredible challenge it is, but at the same time, an incredible economic opportunity. I would say that the global energy transformation that's underway now is by far the largest undertaking in human history. And I don't think it is sufficiently well appreciated just what an enormous challenge that is. I I wrote a paper a couple of years ago called The Three Tragedies of Climate Policy. And those are the tragedy of the horizon, the tragedy of the commons, and the tragedy of the transition. Now, the tragedy of the horizon was a term coined by Mark Kearney, and it just refers to the fact that whether it's benefits or threats that are far on the horizon, we tend not to take them all that seriously in the here and now. So, sure, there may be disastrous consequences in the year 2100 of our failure to curb emissions, but how much are you going to be willing to pay for a tank of gas tomorrow to avoid that? So that's the tragedy of the horizon. It may be the horizon, but people are feeling it now, though, aren't they, in extreme weather? They are, and that, I think, is one of the very few ways in which the future can be brought forward. In a sense, thank heavens. The second, the tragedy of the commons, of course, is the fact that the atmosphere is the common property of us all, and a molecule of carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere above where I sit today eventually finds its way around the world. So unless all of the countries put their shoulder to the wheel, the sacrifice of any individual one won't make the difference. And the final tragedy? The final tragedy is the tragedy of the transition, which is simply the fact that the existing energy system is already very well ensconced. Huge investments have been made. Enormous economic interests are implicated. And it's just extremely difficult to uproot the status quo, particularly the status quo as uh, enormous and pervasive and, frankly, as wealth-generating as the fossil energy system is. So those are the three things you're up against. (laughs) And so tell me, you published this offshore wind paper with us, and it's received an enormous amount of attention. Are you feeling the resistance of those tragedies? No, I'm not yet, because I don't think people have taken the vision all that seriously yet. I don't think that either at the governmental level or at the level of capital mobilization that it's sufficiently real yet to generate a whole lot of resistance. What I will say, and you can see this already in the United States and in Europe, that the recent inflationary pressure, the rise of interest rates, congestion and supply chains, these have all affected the economics of clean renewables and offshore wind in particular has suffered. So you've seen some of the enthusiasm associated with really ambitious offshore wind plans in Europe and the U.S. being scaled back. My own view is that that's temporary, but uh, we'll have to see. Yeah, I think that's an important point for us to think about in the way that you were talking a few minutes ago. You know, it's 27, 26 years to 2050 in any case, which may seem a long time to other people, but it's, you know, not that long at all. And you do have factors, like people seem to design this in perfect ways, but we have the factors of interest rates, and we have inflation, and we have labor market shortages, and we have the need for capital formation. We need governments to move 
public opinion. We need to get our permitting right because we have a bias towards safety and slowing things down rather than a bias towards that action might be safety in itself. That feels discouraging. Yeah, well, look, it is a monumental challenge, and I don't believe that governments anywhere, well, I shouldn't say anywhere, perhaps there are some jurisdictions, but they haven't really come to grips with the scale of the challenge. And you mentioned the problems in capital mobilization, which are enormous, but also you've got the problems of basically remaking the electric grid, for instance. Enormous new transmission is going to be required, much of it across provincial and in some cases national boundaries. I mean, you you know, you try to get a permit for a building or a permit to run a sewer line and you're into local opposition inevitably. So at some point, governments, if they're to take this challenge seriously, are going to have to probably lower the hammer a bit, which has not been something that governments have been wont to do over the last several decades. I want to come back in a moment and remind me to come back to lowering the hammer a bit. But first, I want you to tell me what excites you about the case for offshore wind. A couple of things excite me. First of all, I think it is one of the major elements that can enable Canada to decarbonize its energy system. I think it's arguably perhaps the most significant of the things that are in front of us now. When you compare it with nuclear, with solar, with some hydro and other sources, I think wind and offshore wind in particular perhaps should be the most important. And secondly, of course, it's exciting for me as an Atlantic Canadian. I think it would be quite poetic almost to see wind again as the motive power of this economy, just as wind was in the age of sail. Atlantic Canada has been really at the back of the economic ladder in this country since that time. So I think this could be very significant for the region, but not just for this region. It'll be significant for wherever that clean energy is eventually used. Well, does wind travel? Once you've converted it into electrons, then it travels through wires. Yes. How far afield do you think that this can be influential? You can certainly ship electricity into Quebec. Once you're in the Quebec grid, that has attachments into Ontario. I think it's entirely reasonable. In fact, I would say as a national project necessary for Atlantic offshore wind to power homes in Toronto. Ontario is the jurisdiction in Canada that is most challenged to expand its wind generation. The Canada Energy Regulator's net zero scenario that was released just uh, last June projects that Ontario is going to have to increase its wind-generated electricity almost 18-fold from what it is today, and the nation as a whole, tenfold. But Ontario is really behind the eight ball, and that includes already an assumption by the energy regulator scenario of really substantial increases in nuclear. So uh, if we're going to electrify the economy as a whole, it means that we're going to have to generate an awful lot more electricity than we do today. And where is it going to come from? Well, it seems that people would like wind. Wind is clean, wind is natural, but there has been a lot of resistance to wind, hasn't there? There is, and therein, I think, lies the great challenge for 
let's say, Ontario, because onshore wind farms, as solar farms as well, take up a lot of land. There are a lot of environmental impacts that we're quite aware of. And everywhere you see major expansion of wind terrestrially, you see a lot of local opposition. And if you're looking at only a relatively small number of wind farms, you can overcome that. But if you're looking, for instance, in Ontario, increasing the wind generation by somewhere between 15 and 20 times, you're really going to be up against a tremendous amount of localized opposition, the the NIMBY factor. One of the great things about the offshore is that there basically is no NIMBY factor as long as you're far enough offshore that beach goers don't see the turbines on the horizon. Why that should bother anybody, I don't know, but I know that it does. Well, they're very beautiful uh, in many ways. What will that look like? Just try to draw a picture. Like, how many turbines are we going to need and how many places? Uh, how much ocean will there be left to fish in? Sure, sure. Great question. Well, in my paper, I imagined a 15,000 megawatt or 15 gigawatt wind firm on what's called the Sable Island Bank. It's not on Sable Island itself, that's a protected area, but there's an enormous area of relatively shallow water about 150 kilometers off the Nova Scotia coast. And you could put enough turbines in 4,000 square kilometers, which is still a fraction of the area of this bank, and that would probably require about a thousand turbines of 15 megawatts each. That's roughly the largest ones being installed in the world today. So you've got a thousand turbines on 4,000 square kilometers of ocean where the depth is less than 60 meters, which means that the turbines can be anchored on the ocean floor. One thing that's important in appreciating how other marine uses can interact is that the spacing between those turbines would be about one and a half to two kilometers. So they're huge and they're not nearly as tightly spaced as you might be used to seeing in a terrestrial wind farm where the turbines would be perhaps two, three megawatts at most. And I think in that relatively distant offshore area, I'm really quite convinced that there's going to be no significant interference with the fishing industry, no meaningful interference with marine traffic, There will be concern about the effects of windmills anywhere on bird populations. There's some mortality as a result of running into the blades, but there are lots of ways that are being developed now that make that less likely. A lot of this work being done in Scandinavia. I was just going to ask you, what is the European experience with all those things that you say and resistance or acceptance? The first offshore turbine in Europe was in the water in 1991 in Denmark. And in the last 15 years or so, there's been a tremendous development of offshore wind in the North Sea and around several of the coasts. And from everything that I have read, the environmental impacts are both moderate and certainly manageable in the sense that they're mitigating factors. Probably the most significant one is just the temporary effect on marine mammals 
of pounding the turbines into the ocean floor when the wind farm is being set up creates pretty strong sound waves. And we know that marine mammals have very sensitive hearing. But I'm quite confident that the environmental issues can be well mitigated. So, Peter, you say that the first uh, offshore turbine went in in 1991. The number of offshore turbines in Canada, as we know from your report, is zero. Right. So what's going on here? We have this phenomenally windy shore. You're having a windy day on that windy shore. What's missing here? Look, I think what's missing is that until people started to think seriously about decarbonization, This country was more than satisfied to burn fossil fuels to generate energy, to use abundant hydropower, and we've had a lot of nuclear power in some provinces, particularly Ontario. So we've considered ourselves an energy superpower. That was a phrase that Prime Minister Harper used not that long ago. And consequently, there wasn't the felt need that there was in Europe, which was much poorer in terms of alternative sources of energy. So they got to the game early. I should also say so has China. China is by far the biggest generator of offshore wind energy in the world. They've got about 40% of the total. So no, we were late to the party because we were energy rich in other forms of generation. I think maybe within a week of the report coming out, the premiers of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, were walking away from a proposed transmission system known as the Atlantic Loop. Maybe that has something to do with it, maybe not. I guess if you're talking about exporting to Ontario, I think the Atlantic Loop was meant to bring power into the region. But are we missing some imagination here? I mean, yes, obviously. The reason why the Atlantic Loop was resisted, at least by New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, is that, frankly, they? I don't think that they trusted that Quebec would have that much surplus power to run into the Atlantic provinces because the hydropower resources there looking forward are pretty limited. Anyway, there may have been some other politics and economics involved. But that was a decision taken without any thought of major development of offshore wind to supply the national grid. And of course, if that's going to happen, not only are we going to need some version of the Atlantic Loop, but it will have to be in fact, magnified several fold. But herein lies another great advantage that the hydro resources in Labrador and Quebec are a fabulous synergetic counterpart to offshore wind. I mean, it will be important to have water resources to serve as a form of a battery, really, to offset some of the intermittency. So there is even a more natural opportunity here to unite the hydro resources of Quebec and Labrador with the wind resources offshore, not only in Nova Scotia, it could be offshore Newfoundland and even in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But no, I foresee the need for a vastly larger Atlantic loop. And I think maybe the provinces now recognize that that's the case, but that would be in a very different regime from the one where the initial decision not to go forward was taken. So listen, I promised or threatened to come back to the phrase that you said about governments are going to have to uh, learn to lower the hammer a bit. And 
I'm struck. You're sitting there in Atlantic Canada. You no doubt watch closely as the government acceded to the wishes of Atlantic Canadian members and many people in the region about home heating oil. Yeah, I'm a beneficiary. (laughs) Well, you're a beneficiary. Okay, so I'm glad we have your conflict of interest on the table here before you answer the question. That's good. If the government blinks, and we understand the political pressures in, in a democracy of doing this, if the government blinks at a $65 carbon tax that's supposed to go to $170, how do you keep political support going through this whole project? Well, I, I don't know. And by the way, the blink was even worse because it failed to take account of the fact that the amount of the tar- carbon tax was, or so-called carbon tax, was rebated. And people were getting these checks in the mail and not knowing what they were for. From a policy point of view, that was a ghastly decision. Obviously, it's not confidence-inspiring if you look at the magnitude of the challenge here. I think that the jurisdictions, provincially, federally, do have to get more serious about this problem. If we're not prepared to do that, then future generations are going to have to live with the consequences. Okay, that's easy to say. Why I think the pressure is going to mount in the nearer term is partly because of the kind of experience that we saw last year. So the political demands are going to increase as a result of people experiencing in the here and now. But more than that, the global economics of the clean energy transition are going to make it very hard on those countries and areas that refuse to get with the program. I always have thought from the beginning that the strongest impetus for decarbonizing our energy system was going to be simply the ultimate economic advantage of clean renewables. And we're now seeing that. And those jurisdictions that refuse to recognize that economic reality are going to find their competitiveness really seriously impacted. And I recognize, Peter, that's an important part of the paper also, that this can confer not just advantage on Atlantic Canada in terms of selling the power, but advantage that ripples through the whole economy and, you know, low-carbon products out in the world, right? Yes, and absolutely. There's a huge opportunity beckoning there, but there's also a threat. And the threat is that some of our export markets – who are farther down the line than we are, are going to start saying, well, if you've got a dirty product, we're not going to buy it from you. So it's this notion of border carbon adjustments is the fancy name for it. So you could be facing extraordinary tariffs. So it would be quite tragic if we both forsook the benefit and exposed ourselves to the risk when the opportunity is there to do something about it. I'm cognizant to what you said a moment ago about the generations. You know, tragic particularly for young people who are going to have to live in the world that could exist if we don't get this right. In your own experience, to come back to you, Peter Nicholson, in the midst of this, you have kids, you have grandkids. Do you see this being experienced differently in those three generations? Oh, look, there's absolutely no question about that. And every generation becomes more convinced. I mean, they aren't really suffering from the tragedy of the transition in the sense that they don't have a stake in the fossil fuel industry. I know my grandchildren would only be thinking of a clean energy future. And of course, once they become politically active, 
it's obvious to me what direction they're going to take. So I don't think Ed, that there's any doubt that this is going to happen. I'm not talking specifically about the offshore wind in Nova Scotia. I mean, hopefully that will. But the energy transition globally is going to happen. It's going to happen for environmental reasons. It's going to happen for human health reasons. But overall, it's going to happen for economic reasons. And so it isn't a question of if, it's a question of when. And therein lies the problem. Because these emissions are cumulative, and every day we go without reducing them, is going to put more CO2 molecules up there for the next 500, 800, 1,000 years. But how you nevertheless deal with the politics of the here and now, in light of the tragedy of the horizon, the commons, and the transition, is an enormous question. You can easily become pessimistic about it, but ultimately politics responds to the people. So the responsibility here is for all of us as citizens and voters. And for that reason, I mean, we have to keep talking about what's possible. Well, Peter, I um, think that you found your passion. (laughs) And maybe it's because of those grandkids who will have to live with it. Uh, Maybe it's because you've been standing up for Canada for a long time and its competitive position in the world. And through this transition, I know that you don't want to be a Don Quixote. And I think your wind paper, and I recommend that people have a look at Peter Nicholson's paper, Catching the Wind. I think your wind paper sets out a both realistic and visionary path forward. Yeah, and what I like most in what you just said is that it's both practical and visionary. There's a lot of stuff that's visionary that isn't practical, and there's quite a bit of stuff that's practical that completely lacks vision. What's rare are those that combine both, and... I feel that the wind paper does that. Well, thank you, Peter, for the practical and visionary discussion (laughs) both today and not just on wind, but throughout your entire career on so many issues. And we're so glad you're turning your attention to this very, very big one. Well, it was a real pleasure. And thanks so much to you, Ed, and to PPF for making the opportunity available. I really appreciated it and frankly enjoyed it hugely. Our pleasure. Peter Nicholson is the author of the recent public policy forum report, Catching the Wind, How Atlantic Canada Can Become an Energy Superpower. He spoke with us from Annapolis Royal, Nova Scotia. This is Wonk. I'm Edward Greenspawn. New episodes are available Thursdays. And all I want for the holidays is for you to tell a friend. Before we go, the public policy forum would like to thank our sponsor this week, the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency.